Good evening. I'm just sitting with the fact that this is the last evening of our retreat together and how I've kind of got used to this and feel a little sad that the form is going to change shape and that sense of on retreat, off retreat is going to slide along along the spectrum. So I hope that you're feeling well nourished by the time together and by your practice. So we're going to start this evening, I'm going to share um, a few reflections and then we will see what unfolds beyond that, maybe unfold in a slightly different way from our previous evenings. So we've been really emphasizing the practice and the perspective of no preference or inviting that as a skillful skillful means for really um, seeing the the kind of constructed, fabricated nature of these polarities that we get stuck in. And then the question can arise for us. And I almost, this afternoon, I was wondering whether to read the, there's a um, beautiful poem from the third Chan patriarch of Chan or Chinese Zen Buddhism um, called the verses on the faith mind or the mind of absolute trust that begins the great way is not difficult for those not attached to their preferences or sometimes it's translated for those who have no preferences and we can start to think that we're being told actually you know this is this is the liberated mind is one that just doesn't entertain any preferences. And then the question comes up, well, isn't this just advocating total passivity? So this is another pair of opposites that we can, polar views that we can fall into, that, um, that there's a kind of choice between we've got to choose either passivity or we've got to choose action. And it's, it's, I'm, it's arisen for some of you, I know from what you've said in the, the small groups and been arising for me, the question about what are we doing here at a time like this, you know, withdrawing from the world, spending several days in a peaceful setting, having our food cooked for us, sitting on our mats, not doing anything at all. Is this the right thing to be doing? How is this contributing to the whole? But we're not doing nothing, are we? We're not doing nothing. We are in a process of cultivating bhavana, cultivating, developing, making choices about putting certain things down and at the same time picking, picking other things up. So we have this opportunity to put down the busyness of ordinary life and the opportunity to see the kind of tendencies in the heart and mind that we might 
uh, usefully grow a habit of putting down and other ones that we might usefully grow a habit of picking up. And that sense that there's something, there is something worth doing. There's, there's really something worth doing makes life for me feel meaningful. So this practice of being on retreat also um, brings us to another kind of pair of opposites that we can think about, the sense of independence versus interdependence. Mm. We live in a world where we are, you know, in interdependence, our dependence on one another is a kind of, is inescapable. It's given from the moment of birth, we're dependent on one another. And in a sense, you know, we, we, are, we are utterly interdependent. And yet there's a way in which we also have independence. And um, what do we choose? How do we choose to cultivate? What do we choose to do with that independence? There's a Pali word, word in the ancient teachings called viveka, which means seclusion or independence. And that's what we're doing when we come on retreat. We are um, becoming independent of the situation, the context of our ordinary life in order to um, give ourselves a chance to develop calm and understanding. And there's three levels of this seclusion or independence, viveka. The first is the body that you just remove yourself from your ordinary context in order to give yourself a situation where you can contemplate. And then the second is uh, independence of mind, where we put down kind of the things that we normally feed our mind with. So we put down our engagement with the news, with conversation, with um, unnecessary kind of stimulation and feeding and but both of these are in servant service of the, the third real kind of independence which is in independence from the unwholesome or unhelpful habits of the mind so this is a kind of independence that we're cultivating in order you could say better to inhabit our interdependence better to enable us to navigate our interdependence because we are constantly impacted by and participating in the world around us. So everybody here has some experience of practice, lots of you a considerable experience of practice and I'm sure you know as I do that life gets a lot worse when we don't carve out the time for some of this seclusion, when we don't carve out the time for practice, for disen disengaging from all the stimuli and the things that just um, send us spinning into habits. You might notice the effect of these few days of having disengaged a bit from the news, from your devices, from social media. Yeah. Um, 
for me, I certainly you know, feel a benefit to the extent that I've been able to do that. It's um, re reconnecting with a sense of stability and clarity. So this is a kind of healthy independence that we want to cultivate. And then interdependence, we're so impacted by what we observe around us. And this is um, what gives rise to the experience of compassion. The fact that we recognize ourself in others and others in ourselves. So compassion, um, karuna, the Brahma Vihara, the immeasurable quality of compassion. The other word for it is anukampa, the Pali word anukampa, which means to tremble along with, to resonate with. We resonate with one another's um, with one another's suffering. And I think this is, you know, this is why we're finding it increasingly difficult to hold internally the, um, the suffering that we see manifesting around us. Sometimes we actually even you know, we, we get to a point where we, we need to step away from saturating ourselves with information. And at the same time, we also really, we, we need to know, we want to know, and we, we care, we want to do something to, to help to alleviate suffering. We see, we see ourselves in the other. So, Anukampa is the sense of just resonating with suffering of others and karuna is the, that impulse to reach out to support, to alleviate suffering. And we can see that, for example, in the, the kind of overwhelming response that there's been here in, in this country to people wanting to take in or to do what they can to support the refugees from Ukraine. So compassion is, is the response of the response of the heart to suffering, the response of this basic quality of friendliness of metta to suffering. But when we see the suffering around us also, you know, the, the other thing is that it can send us into fear or despair or anger. So there's a there's this upwelling of compassion, but there's also um, the kind of selfish or the fearful the fearful mind just kind of gets um, triggered into these kinds of states of contraction and this is where this wisdom practice that we we've been contemplating developing is so important to to be able to see beyond this polarization of views and to be able to disentangle ourselves from the imprisonment really in this polarization of views and when we're in in touch with, aware of the, the kind of, mm, the empty nature of these um, viewpoints that, that arise together, then it opens up the possibility of 
other ways of seeing, more creative ways of seeing and of, in, of engaging. So wisdom and compassion are essential, really, to, to balance each other. There's a, a beautiful saying from um, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, who says that wisdom says I'm nothing, compassion says I'm everything, and between these two banks, the life of the awakened ones flows. When compassion is balanced with wisdom, we have the possibility of equanimity. Equanimity still cares, but it, um, it's free and, and it frees compassion from the, the kind of fixation on a goal or an outcome. Pema Children says that in the practice of bodhicitta, of compassion for living beings, that wish that all beings be free from suffering, her practice is to give up both the hope that something is going to change and the fear that it isn't. Because often if there's too much hope, you begin to have a strong sense of the enemy, of the other. And then the whole process of trying to alleviate suffering actually adds more suffering because we start to feel that sense of aggression towards the oppressor. So this wish for the welfare of all without um, an attachment or without an attachment to the goal because we don't know what the effect of our actions is going to be. When we're in touch with the don't know mind, then we're open to the possibility. And I think for me at the moment, there's also this sense of needing to be open to the possibility of, or to be open in the sense of feeling a connection with something larger than us, larger than me. You know, um, the humility that we, we don't know, we don't know how our actions are going to pan out and that um, you know, we, we, we need to be open to whatever support um, the universe might provide. So there's a kind of creative possibility there. Another resource that we really need at such times is the resource of uh, the capacity to enjoy, the capacity to partake of the joy and the goodness that is here. So the other quality, the other um, immeasurable quality of appreciative joy to be able to um, take in and uh, to take in and appreciate both what's good in our life and also celebrate the goodness that's um, that's there in the lives of others. It's very easy when we see so much injustice in the world to fall into a sense of blaming and envying. And, you know, envy shrinks the heart. Envy shrinks the heart. If we want to open the heart, then actually, you know, cultivating gladness 
for the fortune of others. Um, also makes joy available to us in a far more abundant way. So even, and I, I also think that, you know, one can cultivate joy, mudita, appreciative joy for oneself. So there's a way that we can kind of undermine again when we have the opportunity to do something like be here on retreat and life at least temporarily in moments feels good. And then we think that we shouldn't be enjoying that because of the, all the suffering that's out there in the world. But what does it do? How does it contribute to the net amount of happiness in the world to deny ourselves that enjoyment yeah. or to deny one another that enjoyment? So actually this cultivation of joy, I think in itself is almost like an act of compassion. It's resourcing the heart to be, to be of service. It's resource, it's, it's, basically alleviating suffering. So these, these qualities that we're cultivating, the things that we're picking up, are a, a medicine for the cruelty and the indifference um, and the, um, the envy that's there. And they're always possible to cultivate in all circumstances. So we can do this meditatively as we've been doing. And then they have their practical manifestations, the practical manifestations of these open hearted caring qualities, the practical, practical manifestations of goodwill and of compassion in the shape of sila, our ethics, and dana, generosity. So when we practice sila, and I love that we've been renewing this intention, this commitment towards non-harming, together on a regular basis. We're cultivating care for others through what we, what we restrain, what we put down, and also what we do. And this sila gives the gift of safety even when things begin to unravel. And we can really see around us, you know, what terrible things happen when um, that sense of sila is not strong. It's kind of interesting, well, it's interesting to me to, to think about how it feels relatively easy to conduct oneself skillfully when circumstances are supportive. But how do we know how we'd behave when things get really difficult? So again, this is this weaving your parachute before you jump out of the plane thing. That actually uh, attention to sila is a really um, is a really critical thing for all of us to contemplate. 
and then generosity, dana, giving, giving that can take so many different forms of giving, giving material things, sharing. Sharing is a, a wonderful um, aspect or nuance of this, the willingness to share, the cultivation of uns unselfishness. Delighting in relinquishment. So dana is, this, is the activity of giving and it rests on a quality called chaga, which means relinquishment. And it's said that, you know, meditators or practitioners, walkers of the path, delight in relinquishment, in unselfishness, because they taste the, taste the peace of letting go. And actually, sila, you could see sila, you could see ethics as a form of generosity. The sense of giving the gift of safety, freedom from harm and freedom from fear to other beings. And we all have our different ways in which we could practice this. Really an invitation to contemplate how do we, how do we practice giving? How do we practice giving both um, benefits and freedom from fear and harm? in different ways in our life. And I think when, when we find ourselves anxious about the state of the world, it's often the case, isn't it, that actually when we, when we step up and actually do something, this alleviates the anxiety. One of my friends has a, has, says that action absorbs anxiety, you know. Finding something that we can do feels and is way preferable to just sitting here worrying. So there's, you know, we can all ask ourselves, how can I, how can I help? And each of us is different. We each of us have different ways that we might be able to offer, offer our cultivation in action from sewing face masks and knitting hats, to setting up charitable foundations, to taking in families, to, you know, going to the front lines as medics, to environmental activism, to changing our consumption and behavior habits. So many different ways that we can engage and not to set them into our hierarchy because each of our circumstances is different. But really cultivating this in this space, in this open space, how can I help? What can I do? How can I make my practice of these beautiful qualities of heart and mind something that actually takes shape in action? So then this, and then the second piece of this, really, this is like, you know, how, how are we going to navigate? How are we going to survive these times that we are walking in? The second critical component for me, it feels, is Sangha. 
Sangha as somewhere that we can take refuge. Sangha where we can share our hopes and our fears and find wise friendship and wise support. There's something very difficult about shouldering anxiety alone. So you may be familiar with the the story of um, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, saying to the Buddha that surely spiritual friendship is half of of the life of practice. And the Buddha said, no, it's the whole of our practice. Because when a person has good friends, they will develop the path. Having, having good friends is really um, essential, I think, to keeping this practice alive for us. And what we do when we come together as Sangha is to nurture the wholesome qualities in, our, in one another through our interactions and to provide one another with courage and support, encouragement, courage and support. And again, you know, you can reflect for yourself on how you experience this, how you have experienced this, maybe how you've experienced this on retreat, this retreat. Certainly after a long time of you know, not being able to come together in a group to do this, I really value this more and more. But Sangha, of course, isn't just about the people that we come and sit in a meditation hall with. Sangha is the quality of connecting with the goodness in others in all the situations in which we can encounter and nourish that. Yeah, sometimes we really, um, we need to, to let ourselves ride on or coast on or um, be supported by the good qualities of others and the qualities of community. And I think when we're in difficulty, some of us, many of us, have a tendency to withdraw and not to reach out, but to remember that reaching out can actually be a gift to the other. Another um, aspect of community that I find really has been a very, is and has been for me a very supportive part of practice is the ability to come together and um, perform rituals of different sorts. And we've had our, our informal rituals on this retreat. But the way that we can come together with a shared intention and a shared understanding and uh, have a way of being together that enacts something wholesome without a need for a whole lot of discussion and communication around it. 
um, feels something that we, we tend to do not enough of in our contemporary world. There's a lot of, you know, interaction, communication, but not so much um, beautiful shared action. And to me, there's something, again, very um, supportive and empowering in the doing of that. Where that we come together and sense ourselves as part of something larger and held by something larger. So there's, you know, these are these are just kind of pointers to lines of inquiry rather than a, a detailed exploration of any of them. And it's really for you to to take these lines of inquiry and. Um, explore them for yourselves. But really that this uh, cultivation of understanding um, is braided together with the cultivation of generosity and of ethics. So, you know, we speak about the, the path of practice as being a kind of three-limbed path of generosity, ethics, and cultivation, or sometimes the other way of expressing the three limbs, the generosity and the ethics get folded together. So it's ethics and samadhi, developing steadiness and developing wisdom. But here in, in this kind of context, it feels as if we're, we're just, we're doing the meditative and the wisdom aspect, but actually in, in reality, these three strands are inseparable. And our greatest support for all of them is Sangha. So really appreciating all of you for being part of that Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.